Welcome to the We brought in the cheering section for you. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, let's start. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, my name is Michelle Manu, and um, I am a martial arts uh, black belt as well as an instructor, the only female instructor really uh, at this level today in our world for the Hawaiian Lua, uh, specifically the Kaivalu lineage, but also now evolving it since my teacher, Solomon Kaivalu, has passed. So we do have the birthing of the Manu lineage as we should evolve. Um, but I also um, teach in Switzerland as well as with my own group, as well as in Hawaii for several other uh, schools, if you will. And I represent the Hawaiian warrior uh, in the public, which has not really been in the public for over 203 years. And I'm a Knight Commander with the Royal Order of King Kamehameha I. Um, so I was knighted there. Uh, so Dame, if you will, the, the female nice. lady. Wonderful. <laughs> For the wife of a knight, I'm actually a knight. So uh, it's the second highest uh, knight ranking within the royal order. And it's a true honor uh, to protect, promote, and perpetuate the Hawaiian culture through the Hawaiian lua. So that's a little bit about who I am. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. May I ask... Um, so many things that I would love to just follow up on just from that. Um, maybe, I guess the first thing that's jumping out at me is, is you know, as a, someone who loves martial arts and participates in it, is can you describe a little bit about what Lua is like? It, well, how does it relate to other martial arts? Is there some other martial art that you could uh, say that it's similar to or what aspects of it are similar to other arts? And this is an amazing question because because Lua is not so much in the public, we really don't have a gauge of um, what it looks like or really what the the tenets are of being a practitioner or um, what what how it's even effective. So I would say, Sean, that it's um, battlefield uh, martial art, warrior art. Uh, it's not static. Um, the warriors, I like to say, don't just step out of the hale or the house and practice martial techniques. They were versed in and trained up in many different aspects of the culture, including navigation, uh, fishing, 
uh, long distance running, uh, you know, uh, metaphysical ways of being, having control over themselves, uh, being connected to source, if you will, not modern day religions, but source nature. Uh, that's the number one Maoli or original religion. Uh, you name it, they were they were trained in it so they could be well-rounded. Think of Lua as always in motion with a lot of chaos, and um, it looks similar to, or could very much be, uh, I've heard, similar to Salat or Kuntau from Indonesia. Uh, Southeast Asia is where we believe that it migrated from, um, and we're still uncovering the multiple migrations. Um, but there are several origin stories of Lua, and if you can think of it emulating animal and nature elements, so animal movements and nature elements, uh, that are found in the hula dance. Um, this is what it looks like, whether we're holding a weapon or not. Um, so there's a lot of interesting movements in Lua that are not um, first nature, if you will. The lower body, the man, could be moving at a totally different direction than the wahine or the woman in the arms, the kids, and the hands, the grandkids. So maybe you've angled off to two o'clock with the kane, the lower body, and your strike is actually happening at 10 or 12. So it's really, or block. So it's really quite fascinating. Um, when you look at the study of the ohana or the body, the kino, and how they move together, but they don't move together to um, reach their desired effectiveness. I think that's the best way to describe it. That's so amazing. That's, oh, sorry, please don't. Yeah. So you, you threw out some terms to us. Um, it, does the martial art divide the body up into, it sounds like different sections and assign like names and associations to it. And, and on, on top of that, sorry, too, male, female, I heard in the upper body, lower body, too, if you could say something about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so in the Kaivalu, there's each lineage is different. You know, the warriors didn't have like one rule. Um, of course, Ano or integrity, of course, is is the tenant of that, of being a warrior in ancient times. And I'll talk about how one became a warrior, but each school, each lineage, whether it's family or a district of an island or a specific clan or tribe, they all differed. They didn't all know all the weaponry. Some didn't learn any at all. Some were um, actually specialists in the sphere or specialists in, in navigation, and they were the seafaring warriors versus the mauna or mountain warrior. So it differs with every lineage, which is really fascinating. And you can see this also in Hula too. Different islands and different Kumu teachers of each school had, had their own style. And you'll find that in Lua, the martial art. Um, and in the Kaivalu lineage, the lineage in which I teach and uh, keep, because it's very important to see the body as a unit, it is a family unit. And from the waist down is the man or the kane, and from the waist up is the wahine or the woman. Now with the women are the arms, which are the keiki or the kids, and then from the wrist to the fingertips are the grandchildren or mo'opuna. And so everyone has a job. Everyone must make sure that they are moving in unison, so not off balance and in balance at all times. And then it's an interesting thing to think about the arms going out, 
seeing what's going on out in the world and coming back to report back to mama or to protect. So they throw their weapons, they throw their blocks, and then they come home. So it's like equivalent to other martial arts where you don't just punch and leave it out there. You'll see that in a kata or a form. But when we're fighting, you don't allow someone to abduct, abduct a children. You're going to have them come back and protect and guard mom. So and the fingers, you know, very important. We don't, there are several animals that we emulate where our fingers are spread apart, like the cat or the octopus um, or maybe the crab. But um, generally, we try to keep our fingers together so they don't get caught and they don't get abducted as well and broken. And so you'll see our fingers and our mana, our power, our force that we have kind of all aligned together. And so that's how we kind of uh, in my the lineage in which I am, uh, you know, degreed in, as well as teach, we keep our fingers together. That is fascinating to see yeah. the body as a family unit. That's really wonderful. It's a, it's amazing. What the thing that strikes me as you as you describe this, Michelle, is uh, there's a couple of things we you know to unpack this for this episode. It's obviously there's. I already we already realized that we we're just only going to barely scratch the surface of this, but um, and of course we will get to the the woman warrior aspects. But just to follow up on this a little bit, is it sounds like when you describe it, this martial art, is it it is truly martial in the sense of it. What you're describing to me sounds a lot like, um, you know, green beret or seal training. You know, this is something that's not just about the fighting itself, but about the entire martial aspect of you know the entire warfare aspect so i mean i think the one of the things that sounds really fascinating to me is the seafaring stuff you talk about i know that hawaiian the i guess they call them watermen they have that that history of this being connected with the sea so would that be a fair way to describe it that these are these are this is an art that was especially used to train warriors much like maybe they talk about craft maga and stuff like that that's used as fighter training for real combat? Absolutely, because you think, you know, Sean, it, I mean, they're in the most isolated part of the world and visitors are coming and they have to protect their land and the people. And so it wasn't just about uh, dojo training. It was actually being well-rounded in all ways. And Koa warriors, K-O-A, were not necessarily always from the elite or royal class. There were those that were born into the koa profession, if you will. They were raised to be um, generals or warrior leaders uh, of the people. But there are others that weren't born into this. And, you know, bringing in hula, and I'll explain the ban of public display from for both by our queen after King Kamehameha died. But you know, those that were um, men were perceived as terrestrial. So they were really in charge of a lot of things on earth or Honua, Haumea, Mother Earth. And they did a lot of the ugly things that women weren't allowed to do. And I hate that saying, weren't allowed. It's not that they weren't allowed. It's that they were elevated and shouldn't be around this because they would become defiled by it. Um, women had the, the celestial type of duties where it was believed that women were the vessel from everything from Po or source, the unseen, into the physical. And that's why they had responsibilities of returning the physical body, preparing it for the transition of the spirit to go back to the unseen. So um, men were actually recruited from hula halau, schools 
of dance because they were tremendously disciplined and had tremendous balance and micro foot movements that allowed for superior warrior techniques in battle. I mean, you think about the terrain where if you're up on the on the mountain and it's windy and it's raining, you're not going to use the bow and arrow. And you're also going to be on some very jagged rocks. There were no shoes back in the day. Um, then you look at the seafaring or sea coastal warriors where now they're dealing with wind and tide. They're not, you know, same thing. They probably used the paddle. They used um, like if they were spear fishing, they're probably very proficient in that as well. So these type of warriors that were recruited, if you will, taken from different places uh, in the culture of different cultural practices, which would be beneficial to the warrior unit as a whole, they would be pulled from their cultural practice and their profession. And then that point forward, they were co-warriors warrior, co as a profession. Then you think of the call from the king or when there's war, like warring between islands, each chief would call out like kind of like a draft of normal Maka'ainaina, which is the regular, not commoner, we say that today, but it's actually the most important job, caring for the Aina or the land. They knew the demographics of, of their group. They knew the topography of the land, and they were called now to learn certain movements in Lua to help protect the land and their chief that's calling them to the draft. So there's all these different ways in which some were doing this full-time and others came in when needed. So that's that's incredible. You know, one thing that jumps out at me is when you talk about the dance is one of my all-time heroes is Bruce Lee, and Bruce Lee was the cha-cha champion. Uh, not many people realize, but he was a cha-cha champion in Hong Kong, and he thought that his experience with dance helped him as a martial artist. So it certainly... It also reminds me of capoeira, which was... <laughs> You know, which was a dance that happened to have all of the moves of the martial art that was suppressed when, um, you know, when the pe the indigenous peoples were colonized by an outside force. But it's still, you know, it was a way of teaching the martial art without calling it the martial art. Mm. Yeah, it was concealed. And that happened with us, Don. So in 18, about 1823, so we're at an anniversary right now, slightly after uh, the king passed, his favorite wife, which they didn't have wives, but they had, um, you know, obviously you're going to procreate and it was sexuality was extremely encouraged uh, in the islands, of course, the colonialism changed that uh, mindset sure. as well. Yeah. But, you know, um, as uh, it was being how would you say it's a luau so um a more serious type of celebration with feasting where we had uh, visitors there of non-hawaiian descent and as the lua was demonstrated the responses of the visitors uh clearly they were uncomfortable um really let the queen Ka'ahumanu uh, see that it was too brutal uh, for it to be displayed in public so in about 1823 she uh banned the public display of the Hawaiian Lua. Hmm. And from that point on, it went underground into the Hulen was hidden within the cities where there were people watching for these 
um, violations so that they can report it. But out in the outskirts, outside of the major city areas, uh, the urban areas, Lua was still very much practiced, but quietly. Um, three years later, two to three years later, um, the queen also banned Hula. Um, it was believed that she also turned Christian, changed her name to uh, a, an English name, and said that the hula dance and any other cultural practices, if there was a waste of time, because in Christianity, if you were not working, then you there was idle time that was um, indirectly or directly um, being celebrated, uh, celebrating the devil, if you will. Mm. So at that point, it went underground. And um, we were lucky enough to, about 50 years later, King Kalakaua decided to um, say that the ban of hula is now uh, rescinded. It can be shown in public. It can be celebrated. And uh, it's the heartbeat of the Hawaiian people. And that was wonderful. He did try to do the same with Lua at Iolani Palace in the basement in one of the rooms, and it never really resurged. Um, so while there was this um, proclamation that hula could be shown in public again, there really has never been that sort of proclamation for Lua. And so it has remained pretty secret, held very closely by those that have any knowledge and um, it hasn't just been kept secret from non-Hawaiians. In my opinion, it's also been kept secret from our own people. So uh, this is where we are today. So with that in mind, how did you, well, how did you encounter it? What, how did your journey with Lua start? Oh, it's going to sound absolutely ridiculous, but I'm going to tell you, I, you know, I am of mixed descent. My father is Hawaiian, Filipino, Chinese, English. He left the islands during a time where Hawaiian men were not given respect. They had to wear certain jeans and fold their jeans a certain way, wear certain shoes and comb their hair the right way. And they were absolutely not allowed to speak Hawaiian. He became a Christian and left the islands and actually went to Chicago and uh, started university there and met my Scandinavian mother, who is a model, actress, and valedictorian. So not a dummy, but absolutely beautiful. And they married. And um, uh, I, I ended up growing up. We moved back to Hawaii Island, the big island, uh, for a short period. But then we ended up back in Southern California, where interracial marriages were a little more accepted, but there was still a lot of tension. And so I grew up on the mainland. I'm educated on the mainland. Um, I know I go back home every month now to teach, but um, I, if had I not been raised in, on the mainland, I would have never been exposed to Lua. There is absolutely no way that women were, were um, being exposed to Lua during uh, the time that I was growing up. And so had I not been here, I wouldn't have been exposed. I found my teacher during the renaissance of Lua. It was about, about, about the 60s and the 70s where Lua started to become more and more prevalent uh, in Hawaii. And it's mostly uh, this, this resurgence was actually credited to one lineage that is primarily throughout the islands. But while that was happening, there were also, I know of three Kanaka or, or native Hawaiian men that then came to the continent, uh, specifically the mainland. So you're talking U.S. and started teaching non-Hawaiians and Hawaiians in Lua. One of those three men was my teacher. And so I actually, long story short, but I found my teacher in the yellow pages of all places. <laughs> <laughs> so you think it's, you know, hush, hush back home, but here it's in the yellow pages. And um, 
yeah, I, I hadn't, I've been the first woman that he accepted to train in over 25 years. And so um, I didn't realize it at the time that when I was accepted to train, I'm sure he expected me to quit. And he did try to get me to quit, hmm. especially through severe injuries for uh, almost nine years. My hazing period was definitely eight years. Wow. And I didn't quit. But I didn't know at that time when I showed up that this would be my life, that I would, I was actually becoming a disciple and a cultural representative. And I had no idea that I would represent the woman warrior so powerfully in this way. Um, it's been a real amazing journey for me, a really amazing journey. Michelle, um, just two questions uh, to follow up on that. One, so you found it in the Yellow Pages, but how were you, had you been told about that specific art uh, first and then said, okay, I'm going to seek it out. And then second, can you talk about the the woman warrior in Hawaiian culture a little bit? Start us off on that discussion. Yeah, sure. So I, um, I actually returned from touring in the Midwest as a professional Polynesian dancer and choreographer. Mm -hmm. And when I returned to Southern California from the Midwest, I I just knew it was time. I like, I needed contact. I was okay with, you know, representing the Hawaiian culture through a history and movement, but I really, I don't know. I've just made, been made a different way where I need contact. And, um, I was, I knew that I wasn't going to be front and center anymore, uh, especially out here in Southern California, where there's so many amazing performers, um, having to do with Polynesian culture, not just Hawaiian. So I started to seek out schools and I went to a Hapkido school, um, no women. I can tell that the, I could tell that the instructor really didn't uh, <laughs> want me to join or, you know, I, I just didn't get a good feel. And so I looked in the yellow pages again and I said, this couldn't be, this can't be our secretive warrior art in the yellow pages. And so I called and long story short, I uh, got hung up on twice. And the third time I said, look, I don't know what's happening. I think we keep getting disconnected, but that's okay. I'll keep calling back. And so I, she finally agreed to take my number after telling me he doesn't teach women and hanging up on me twice, that she took down my number and he called and he invited me to watch a class. And that's how it went. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And hmm. And is that hazing period that you went through, is that typical of practitioners for the art or was that reserved just for you? I think that was reserved just for me because he hadn't taught a woman in 25 years and I was mm. disrupting status quo. My teacher's a little bit different than I am as far as how he taught. He, he raised soldiers. We didn't breathe or move or flinch or do anything without him giving us instructions where I've evolved more to wanting to raise warriors, warriors that work well with others, but also will not rely on technique number four. Uh, if an attack happens that they have all these tools and they get to choose how they deploy those tools in order to survive and protect. Nice. So it's a little bit different. Um, and as far as Sean's second question, as far as women warriors, you know, if you look at traditional Hawaiian um, education, I think, um, and it was interesting because I was on a podcast where one of the other educators said that in in school, she always uh, learned what what is, you know, what has been wrong with our culture um, up through uh, graduation of high school. But when she got into college, she started learning about what we what we did do right as a culture. And it was just really fascinating to hear that. I think in our traditional culture, because the colonists, they brought 
this limited viewpoint of women uh, based on their own culture. They didn't understand the roles in which women held and men held in ancient times, which was the substrate of the fabric of the culture. And so bringing that, our story and the relevance and the importance and the value of women was told from a non-Hawaiian, very masculine perspective. And so that's what we have learned. And it's what's been regurgitated. And it's what our people believe. And so now that we're finding out more and more about women's roles, not just in Lua and leadership, but also in the culture, it's been extremely uh, almost violent in a way to say this can't be true. And even our own people will have trouble believing it. Um, just because we haven't heard it before doesn't mean it, that's not how it was. Um, so, you know, I think destigmatizing the female and the woman warrior and warrior leader um, and, and had their contributions to our culture um, since before the abrogation of the Kapu in 1819, before all of these visitors started coming and telling our culture to us. Um, you know, I think it's really important to talk about these things these days. And so I'm trying to do that as much as I can. You, you've mentioned the date 1819 before. Can you just uh, say more about what that significance is? It was uh, actually when our king passed, everything okay. changed. When he passed on and transitioned to Po, his uh, favorite wife, Queen Ka'ahumanu, took over and broke all of the rules. And she placed her family in positions of leadership on all islands when there were chiefs already in place to take over. And with that caused a lot of heva, or if you will, pilikia trouble. Um, and things just went downhill from there. Um, what about, so you said that, you know, there has been this reaction to un, finding out more about the, the roles that women had in culture. Um, I, I, I found it so interesting what you said about the upper and lower body. What, what is that part of, is that part of the spiritual tradition, uh, in terms of your, the cultural's traditions about how the, how men and women are looked at within the context of a more cosmic realm? I mean, can you say a little bit more about what that upper, how that, how that works? Is it, is it sort of like yin yang or what would it be similar to? Yeah, I very much like that, Sean. Um, so the white and the black, the dual, dualistic part of our culture, yet some, in fact, one of my mentors, Kumu Lucia will tell you there's no such thing. It's, it, it's all one. And yes, this is true, but we speak of ku masculine and hina feminine. I speak of it all the time because it helps us understand this spectrum of energy. And so, yes, it was very spiritual. Um, women being the birthers, the physical birthers, um, you know, we were given different responsibilities in the spirit, um, which men weren't allowed to participate in. Okay. And, and, and so, I mean, those things that men didn't participate in were, were of, I guess, a religious nature in that sense. Yeah, um, spiritual. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but in terms of the the warrior uh, aspect, there were there there could there was an opening for their uh, for women's practice in that you know culturally historically. Well, what we're finding now is that a lot of people speak of uh, the Wahine joining her Kane on the battlefield during the time of battle. I mean, the most common um, and most popular story is Monono II, who um, saw her husband take a musket ball to the head and drop, and she was trying to protect him and still fight. And then she took a musket ball, and as she fell, 
she just said, keep loving. Um, and uh, I think that was the message. Never stop fighting. Uh, is Wahine and Kane, that's husband and wife or wife and husband? Uh, man and woman. Yeah. So, it was her, okay. so, you know, that, that they were in that loving relationship of what we would consider a husband and wife today. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'll tell you, it's uh, women weren't just used on the battlefield and they most likely weren't soldiers. They were used in a very interesting special forces type of way to Mm. gather intelligence, to sneak in and out of spaces in which the male COA could not. Um, And this is what we're finding more and more. There's a recent story, which of course, some don't want me to speak about, and that's of the Mo'ala. And the Mo'ala is what we found in a court record in a case about banditry, where they are actually used as an example to convict uh, this recent case of banditry. It was a warrior squad of 40 women, some more higher ranked than others. And I believe that they had intelligence cells within the community to report back. They used um, their intelligence uh, to attack uh, those that maybe a uh, corrupt kahu or priests uh, that were uh, harming the public. Uh, King Piivali of Piivale of uh, Oahu actually assembled these women, trained them so that they could guard his daughter Queen Kaahu, or excuse me, Queen Kukani Loko, when she became queen because there were chiefs that were supposed to take the place once he passed on, but he knew he was going to name his daughter and that she would need protection. When her daughter took over. Uh, they were still in place and served the monarchy. But when Queen Kukani Loko's grandson took over, he became corrupted by complete power. He ousted them and they became a guerrilla unit. At that time and for 30 years, they hid out in the Ko'olau Mountains on Oahu and used the one of the famous trails there at night to go and ransack some of the storehouses of the Ali'i, they caused a lot of trouble. And these women were undetectable. They were lightning fast. They had camouflage capabilities. And never again would you ever hear this. They wore tiger shark skin as protective uh, gear. And they've never been used ever again in our culture, not even by our king, because these women predate our king, because they were considered to be Hina or feminine product, like a feminine products. My gosh, feminine garment. <laughs> well, so, they they uh, sound yeah. like nin- ninjas. So. <laughs> yeah, they definitely sound like, like ninjas, ninjas or like yeah. um, uh, the the um, revolutionary women in Mexico who would hide out in the hills and and you know would attack um, targets at at, at will. And uh, then melt back into the mountains and disappear. You know, I think, Don. I think if you and my my thesis was on this, right? The oh. woman warrior. Um, it, it's it's every culture I did research yes. on for my thesis uh, showed that women warriors existed, and they existed in this way. I mean, you look at this Scotta of Scotland, right? She was the trainer of all all warriors. And she was the one that made their sword and gifted them the sword when they were ready. And you you look at every, every ethnicity and we existed in this way. Um, It's so fascinating to me. We don't speak of this very often where we are all the same. Um, And it's interesting too, you know, they, 
there's so much uh, with the metaphysical aspect. Um, we weren't just, you know, a uh, savage physical warriors. Yes, we were formidable. Yes. But we also had this aspect where we were believed to have one foot in the in, in the unseen and one foot in the scene. And this is how we knew things that we couldn't have possibly known. And this is a this is across our human history. Yeah. 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 One of the one of the things that I used to to go to panels and, and lecture about when I was with Babes with Blades in Chicago was that there is this incredible underground history of women warriors around the world. And I used to start my lectures by saying, women have been fighting in every geographical location in every time period in history, full stop. Because these stories are there. And once you just, once you scratch that surface of the sort of accepted history, the stuff that's taught in, you know, European Civ 101 or whatever it is, you never hear about the women warriors in, in, in that level of education. But if you start digging, you will find everywhere, every when, you will find there were women warriors present, um, whether or not they were individual um, iconoclasts and vigilantes or revolutionaries, or whether there were standing armies uh, made of either all women troops or mixed gender troops. We have been there. We have a martial history. And so it is so amazing to be able to hear this martial history uh, that, you know, again, has been driven underground, has been sort of hushed up and has been, um, the stories have been retold without them in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with you 100%, Don. Yeah, yeah. So that's fantastic. So where do you where do you teach? How do you teach? Tell us uh, more about your journey. Where your journey with Lua is right now? Oh my gosh! So I'm I'm used in such a powerful way. Sometimes I can't believe it, and sometimes you know, like every teacher, there are certain aspects uh, or, or uh, that we want to not teach. And sometimes we don't want to teach anymore at all, but maybe we just need a break. Um, <laughs> I am so grateful to most of my student base is virtual based on their locale. Um, because of COVID, I've been really able to embrace virtual teachings. I see how do you do that in martial arts? It's actually possible. Um, it's just we need to get together once in a while, visit me. I go and uh, they come to an event that I have so that they can feel the force and the resistance because no one's just going to stand there and take it. Let's be honest. I wouldn't. I'm going right. to be I am going to be absolutely the most non-compliant possible. If, if, <laughs> I encourage my students to be the same. So I have a small group of about nine that come in and out of my uh, training center here in Southern California. But um, I also teach every month, uh, including at Honolulu Community College um, in Hawaii. So um, there's two schools there and a community center that's up and running. I uh, wish they were a little more active, but they're still training and that's good. Um, so yeah, that's, and I teach um, events, you know, here and there workshops. And so I have my system, Nakoa, and that means the warriors uh, and it's eight levels, a level a warrior level eight is black belt, but it is not just Lua. You must study the metaphysical uh, hula as well as the Lua Lomi, which is the warrior massage. And um, that is, and conditioning is absolutely uh, non-negotiable. 
So my students hate me. They usually swear at me because we're always doing some sort of weird movement, but I'll tell you it helps. And, uh, and that's where I'm teaching these days. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Where in Southern California, if someone wanted, was in the region and wanted to look you up to try to take a class? Yeah. So it's in the, uh, it's just a little bit South of Los Angeles. So it's kind of convenient for San Diego and Arizona, Nevada, and Northern California to come down and train. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. And what else are you up to? Because I know that you also are involved in the industry. And uh, so is, is the, are there projects that you're working on that you would like to tell us about that you'd like to share with us? Uh, Don, you know how it goes. It's hurry up and then wait. Backwards. Yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> and then, you know, there's also those relationships. They don't turn out exactly how you thought they were going to turn out. And then, of course, it's L.A. and a bunch of transplants. And, uh, yeah, people aren't always people of their word. Um, but, you know, besides all of that, uh, you know, being a woman in the industry is really fascinating. I love that I get to show the Hawaiian culture through the lua and proficient battle, I would say, combat, contact, because what we see these days are these martial models flinging sticks. Someone sprayed some nice liquid on their breasts where the cameraman, the videographer then goes through the breast slow-mo and then a smiling <laughs> twirling sticks. And that's not me. Um, I want to forever be viable and um, not an influencer, but an impactor. And so any chance I get to be on screen, whether that's with a series or a film, anything, honestly, to show these movements, they, they get the energy across or the mana versus me just taking still pictures and talking about it. So there's several projects, um, smaller projects, and uh, I don't really have anything uh, totally noteworthy to speak about. Several, I can't, two of them I can't talk about, but those are on the back burner, of course. So um, yeah, I just look forward to representing all women, one, two, the culture, and three, Hawaiian women warriors. And that's really what I love doing. That's wonderful. How would someone reach you if they did want to um, work with you on a project or uh, like just what they were hearing about this this culture? Because it is a fascinating, I mean, I've never, uh, for all my love of martial arts, I've never really encountered this before. So uh, how would someone reach out to contact you? Is there an email address or a website? Uh, that you would like to share? Sure. Uh, my personal for like industry and speaking is michellemanu.com, uh, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-M-A-N-U, so man with a U. And then for NACOA, if someone's interested in studying, there's an application process. It's not like a class of fitness where you can just come and go. Mm-hmm. There is a code of conduct for students, and some people are sometimes dismissed. But that is nakoawahine.org, so N-A-K-O-A. W-A-H-I-N-E dot org. And the same for Koa, uh, the Kane, the men is Nakane, excuse me, Nakoakane.org. At one time I had these separated and now they've mixed, they've merged uh, since a year ago, July. And I think it's wonderful because men need to work with women and women absolutely need mm. to work with men. Women yes. tend to um, have some sort of unfortunate experience with uh, toxic 
um, like too much male energy or aggressive energy. And we have it too as women. Don't get me wrong. This is not a, this is not a man or woman thing. We meet many women that are aggressive as well and could have some abusive tendencies, but you know, women are most likely, um, to experience this more than men. So it's good for them to work with the male students and understand that not all men are trying to hurt them, but when they feel that anxiousness from that past experience, that they're triggered in that moment and they're able to work it out, embody it in their physical body, transmute it and actually use it to their benefit. So it's been really wonderful to watch the blend of the men and the women actually training together. Wow, that is that is amazing. I love that. And, and actually one further thing, uh, because the the your description of this is it, the the visual is really powerful. So where would one find, are there any examples you can give where someone can go to look and see this martial art? I'm sure YouTube, but I mean, are there particular uh, teachers or particular scenes or is, has it been shown in film? You know, where could people look, uh, go to just see what this looks like? Well, unfortunately, Noah's so um, kept closely to the heart that um, there isn't much out there public. And I understand why, because mm -hmm. there's a difference between appreciation and appropriation. Yes. And, you know, some can't grasp the depth of what a warrior was. It's not just martial techniques um, or forms. So you won't find much. There is the public display of Lua, which you'll see me do a lot. And there can be some heat for doing that as well. But the inner workings are really disclosed to others that are not um, full-time Haumana or students. Um, you know, Sean, there's uh, clips on YouTube. Um, that I try to populate my YouTube, but I'm, I'm pretty terrible at it. I need to get better at that. <laughs> but you can see the handling of the weaponry. You can see that it's not just me holding a weapon, that it actually becomes part of my body. Whether I am holding that weapon or not, the movement should still be the same because my body is directing that weapon. If I lose that weapon, I should still be able to do the same technique, empty handed standing and on the floor. So, um, you know, weapons were very important. Our meakawa is what they're called weapons. And a warrior would not be necessarily versed or trained in all of them. I luckily am. And they've all been my favorite at one time or another, but a warrior would have one weapon if there weren't, um, their favorite wasn't their hands. And it would be given a name, a place to sleep in the house with a pillow or a corner. And it would only be touched by the owner, awakened for practice, training, or for war. So they were held very sacred, these weapons. It wasn't just a piece of wood with some shark teeth or a rock or a string. They were given a name and they were revered. And, you know, when I make weapons, which I was so lucky to make some yesterday, um, there's a process of intention that you place into that weapon for it to have a long life, for it to be faithful to its owner, meaning not misused um, in any way, to follow the lines of the owner in which the owner is using his, his or her mana, and for the weapon not to be stripped from the owner and used on the owner. So there's all of these the spiritual aspects that go into making weapons. It's not just zoom, 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 and there you have it. So, so the rep with the weapon has a, a spirit. Yes, essentially. that's right. Yeah. And a, yeah. And a place, a rightful place in the holly, the house. That's beautiful. I love that respect, that, that respect of the, 
the process and also of the product that that it is a philosophy entire and it's not like i'm going to pick up this stick and wave it around it's it is there is that connection yeah yeah, yeah. it's part of you absolutely i think it's you know to be conscious um and intentful in what yeah. we're doing at all times yeah um, something we, we should do in our lives as well yeah, yeah. exactly mm -hmm. yeah it's not it's not a different process yeah Oh, that's wonderful. Is there anything else that you want to say that we have forgotten to ask you? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> is there anything else you would like to know? All of it, but, <laughs> but I think, exactly. yeah. Exactly, but we know we it can't all be revealed. But uh, Indeed, yeah, indeed. It's, it's and actually extraordinary. It really yeah. is extraordinarily fascinating. I want to, I, I'm hoping that, uh, that, perhaps we can see more of this in, you know, over the years being a part of Babes with Blades and, and, um, and going to a lot of um, sort of stage combat workshops where they, where they look at the history of the martial arts of various different cultures. Um, I would, I'm, I would like to spread the word on this because I would love to see you be able to speak about this in, um, in more venues and really get the, uh, the knowledge about this tradition out there in the historical martial arts communities around the world. So well, thank you, Don. You know, there is there's the physical self-defense, right? But there's also the psychic and um, spiritual self-defense, which yeah. you'll see is the higher level of Lua. Um, a lot of what we battle in our life, and I know what the Christians would call spiritual warfare. I, I, I wouldn't, I'm not Christian, but I would say on an energetic level, most of what we deal with is usually behind the scenes and in the, in the dark matter that we can't see, but we can feel. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Lua was done through um, energetics and was also done through poison. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Yeah, there wasn't, uh, today you'll find some Lua practitioners that are concealed as uh, Lao Lapa'au practitioners, which is plant medicine. So right. um, our our monarchy was also very fond, especially the Wahine leaders were very fond of poison, especially mm -hmm. tea and food. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot hidden within the warriors that we don't necessarily speak about, but we see in all different branches, whether it's the goddess community or other uh, pagan religions, where you know the energy is at work and that when we're moving forward, there's this energy of resistance or this equal and opposite force that's always going to present itself, which, you know, brings me back to what Sean was saying, the duality. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't act like you're the three monkeys with your hands over your mouth, ears and eyes. You know, mm -hmm. This does exist. We feel it. And just because we don't have any tangible evidence of it doesn't mean it's not at work. So there are different aspects to Lua that, you know, uh, dedicated students get to actually learn more about. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for thank coming you, on yes. and sharing this with us. Well, thank you for having me. You're probably like, woo, that was a little much. <laughs> no, not <laughs> no, at all. Not, that was, that was all. fantastic and totally right up Sean in my alley. Yeah, oh, good. I'm glad amazing. you're like, woo, she's a little out there. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. It was amazing. So thank you very much. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm really grateful. 
And I want to thank everyone for listening to this. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast. Uh, this is Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you, and we'll be back again soon. And this is Don Sam Alden. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care, everyone, and blessed be.